Okay, open up to 1 Timothy chapter 3, and uh, we'll be diving in and actually finishing our list of qualifications. I know it feels like we've been in this list for a long time, and uh, it's been several weeks that we've been in it, but I think it's helpful for us, and it will be provide um, fruitful opportunities for us to be obedient in the future as we look at the office of overseer. And if you haven't been with us, basically what that means, it's the same thing as a pastor or a shepherd, overseer, elder. All those terms, if you see bishop, all those terms in scripture are basically synonymous. They talk about different aspects of the same office. Okay, So we're looking at an overseer, and we want to ask this question, okay, well, what is expected of an overseer? And what are some things we should look for in overseers? And so we've got this whole list. We've gone through um, being above reproach, husband of one wife. Sober-minded, self-controlled, not a drunkard, respectable, well thought of by outsiders, hospitable, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, able to teach, not a recent convert, and not puffed up with conceit. And so this week we're going to finish up this list by looking in verses 3 through 5 at these final two. He must not be a lover of money, and he must be a good manager of his household. So to kind of start off our time, we'll look at this uh, first phrase here, not a lover of money, in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. Um, if you look in verse 3, it's right after not quarrelsome, so able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. So this is a crucial qualification when it comes to an overseer. And I know that someone would be like, well, aren't they all crucial? Like they're all in there, shouldn't they all kind of be? And yeah, that's true, but this one's a little bit different. And to understand why, we're actually going to fast forward in this book. If you'll go to chapter 6, 1 Timothy chapter 6, and I'm going to treat this in more detail when we get to this um, in our study of the book. But I have to bring it up now because that's why it's here. 1 Timothy chapter 6, and look down at verse 9. I'm going to go ahead and read verses 9 and 10. It says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money, there's that same phrase, is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. So the reason that the love of money is so crucial is because this is the one qualification that produces sin in the life of the person that is guilty of it like no other one does. Listen as I just recap how this short passage, these two verses, describes the person who has this love of money. Those who have it fall into temptation. It is a snare that traps its victims. It produces Senseless desires. It produces harmful desires. It creates ruin. It creates destruction. It is a root of all kinds of evils. It wrecks faith. It pierces with many pangs. So in just two short verses, we see that this love of money... It's not just your ordinary, oh, well, this is one problem area of sin. But this is one of those things that produces an overwhelming abundance of sin in the life of the one who is guilty of it. The danger in the love of money can be traced back to this root, desire. 
The person that has a love of money has a desire within them for something that causes them to act on it. The one who desires money will be filled with ungodly desire in his pursuit of it. And those ungodly desires will begin to formulate into ungodly actions. We see this line of thought in the book of James, chapter 1, verses 14 through 15. It says, and this is talking about temptation and sin, but you'll see the connection. It says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So desire takes root inside of us. When it's talking about sin and temptation, there's a desire on the inside. And then it gives, starts to give birth to this sin by producing temptation in us. I have a desire for something. I have an opportunity. And I see it and I think, this is my moment. And there's when that temptation grabs hold of you. And then that temptation produces the sinful act. It all starts with a desire. The love of money produces in us a competing desire that wants to be acted upon, and the result is all kinds of evil. So looking at uh, the book of Matthew in chapter 6, the Sermon on the Mount, this would be a passage you're very familiar with. Verse 24 says this, Jesus says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The one who oversees God's church needs to be ready and willing to bend to the will of the Lord. It's going to be very difficult for this person to do that when there's a conflicting desire within them for something else that Jesus tells us you can't serve both. He won't be able to be 100% faithful to God's desires as he's battling this desire for more of something. We say money, but this word in Matthew 6, 24 is mammon. It's, it's not just money. It's also possessions. It's things. It's this accumulation of, of physical worth and value and wealth. I want to give you an example of why this is so significant for a pastor. Consider a hard topic to preach on. Okay, The one that I picked, premeditated on, was maybe being present in church. So a pastor gets up to preach, and Scripture instructs Christians in the book of Hebrews to not forsake gathering together so that you can stir one another up to good works and encourage one another. Hebrews 10 That's where it teaches this. So to neglect this instruction would be sinful. Now, this is a message that might be hard for some to hear. They would hear this, and maybe even in here, you may hear that and be like, oh, well, I think it's hard right now to hear. Okay, But it's in Scripture, and a pastor needs to be able to preach on things that people will not want to readily hear. He needs to preach the whole Word of God and the whole counsel of God. And what would happen is that there may be some that hear that and say, well, I don't like what he just said, so I'm gone. And they leave. So then this person leaves, and it turns out they were a significant tither. And so now the tithes of the church goes down. And maybe it happens enough, enough people leave, where now the pastor's salary is not going to quite cut it. So now this man has to take a pay cut. 
The pastor who is filled with the love of money will see all of that all the way down the road before he preaches this sermon. And what will filter in his mind what he chooses to preach or not preach on will be what will keep the most tithers in the church. And what's going to happen to the church is it's going to be deprived of healthy teaching. So that's why this is such a big issue. The pastor will not have the church's best interest at heart if he's driven by the love of money. It's a big issue. And it's the same with us. The love of money has caused many of us to be more devoted to our jobs than our families, than our church, than the Lord. We all have a hierarchy of priorities that determine where we spend our time. And when two conflicting things come up, whichever one has the highest mark on the priority scale is what occupies that time. So we fill up our calendars. Something new comes up. We look. We see I've got something this day. And I think, okay, what's more important, this new thing that's come up or this thing that's there? Well, can I reschedule one or both of these? Can I make them both happen? Ah, I can't. I've got to pick one. Which one do you pick? The one that ranks higher on your priorities. And it's this love of money here that has caused us to neglect the things that deserve a higher priority, but that we give a lower status to. Why? Because i got to make that paycheck. If you back right up to before verses 9 and 10 here in 1 Timothy 6. Right before that, uh, I'm going to start in verse 6. He says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and we cannot take anything out of the world. But if we have food and clothing with these, we will be content. So the desire to be rich is contrasted with Contentment. On the one hand, you have wanting more, the love of money. I need more of this. And on the other hand, you have having enough. If you have enough, you don't need more. You may get more. You may even want more. You don't need it. If you find yourself wanting more, you cannot be content with what you have. You can't really say, I have enough. And this exposes the snare of the love of money. You will never have enough. It's a lie. The enemy has deceived us into thinking, well, if I could just get enough to pay this off, that's really all I'm asking. You will get that paid off, and then there will be something else to fill that void. It will be a never-ending snare, and you can't escape it. The writer of the book of Hebrews makes the same connection between the love of money and contentment. Hebrews 13.5 says this. Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So to be free from the love of money is to be content with what you have. I have enough. First Timothy 6 
that we just read, verse 8, as a reminder, it says, If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. So to be free from the love of money is to say, my needs, what I need to eat, what I need to wear, that's enough. That's contentment. Now, I'm going to come to you as a 32-year-old millennial who loves this technology. I love, I love having access to this thing. We're in an important moment. I need a distraction for the kids. Okay, we can watch a little cartoon. Great. We used to not have that. That's terrific. Oh, I'm lying. I need the GPS. I need all these things. Some of us treat this, and I am the most likely culprit. Some of us treat this as though we have to have it. We don't have to have this. It's helpful. It's recording the message right now so we can post it online. Helps us find and keep track with our families. I don't need that. My craving for these things exposes this unhealthy desire to not be content with just what I need. I start labeling everything I need. Well, I need this. I don't really need that. So to be content is to say my needs, my basic needs are enough. We might ask at this point, how can someone live like that? How does that happen? Is that even possible? I'm going to repeat the words of Hebrews 13:5. He says, keep your life free from love of money and be content. And he gives a reason. For he has said, God has said, this is why I will never leave you nor forsake you. Contentment happens when we conform our lives to the truth of God's word that he will never leave or forsake us. How can you be content with your needs? Because I know my God is near. Yeah, but what if this happens? My God is near. It's going to be okay. Stacy will get mad at me sometimes and we'll be in a situation like, oh, but what if, what if, what? And I quote this passage from Psalms. It's chapter 20, verses 7 and 8. And it says, Some men trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. And I always quote this, sometimes jokingly, but with an element of truth, in saying, we don't trust physical things like other people do. I trust the Lord. He's going to provide. And she can be like, she knows it's coming. Whenever I start to quote it, she just rolls around. She knows it's coming out. But it's because we both know that that's true. It's hard to trust, but we know that God is near us. He will not forsake us. That's a promise you can take to the bank. He will not. Same idea comes up in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Very famous passage. You'll be familiar with this as well. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. God wants us to rely on him for what we need. But we are not content with that. So what do we do? We strive for more. We stockpile. I need more. You saw it with the Israelites. They're in the wilderness. God sends manna down. He says, eat this, but only take what you need. Do not take any more. What do they do? 
they start stockpiling it and it rots. God wants to give us exactly what we need so that we're more dependent upon him. When we are content, we are freed to seek God first. But when we are not content, we become enslaved to the warped desire to seek what we don't need at the expense of what we can't live without. God. We trade what we can't live without for something that we don't need. You cannot serve both God and money. And as overseers of the church, they cannot do so either. It will bring destruction and ruin and shipwreck the church. So before I go on, I need to make a comment here, one final comment. This does not give us the license to underpay our overseers. Our pastors. A lot of people have used this qualification to justify the sinful underpayment of pastors. The issue here is not an issue of salary amount. And in case you think, um, I want you to see this in the text, but you can go back and look at it. This is the qualification for the candidate. I'm looking at the candidate for something. So this isn't a salary issue. It's a heart issue within the candidate. You choosing to underpay the candidate does nothing for him but put a strain upon him and tempt him to try to seek what he shouldn't be seeking anyway. I'm not going to go into more detail about that now because this actually comes up in chapter 5, so we'll come to it then whenever we get there. But I have heard some people say that and uh, use it to justify that, and it's not right. I feel like I need to say also, that's not me trying to make sense. You know that, hopefully, already. (laughs) All right, here's the second one. Starting in verse uh, 4. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? So just like the one we just looked at, this qualification affects the overseer's ability to guide the church directly. The love of money influences ability to guide the church, and so this influences his ability to guide it. The way that an overseer manages his family is going to be a direct reflection for how he's going to manage the church. It's going to happen in much the same way. And Paul drives this point home with a rhetorical question. If someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? The answer is he won't. It's rhetorical. He won't. We know the answer to the question. The overseers of the church are called to direct and lead the church. That's why we looked earlier. What's an overseer? An overseer is an elder, a bishop, a shepherd, pastor. What does a shepherd do? Guides the sheep. Where? To safety, to pastures, away from evil. So a shepherd leads and guides Therefore, he needs to be able to lead in God. He needs to be able to manage and to deal with people. They are guiding God's sheep into these greener pastures. 
So it follows that the shepherd needs to know how to get the sheep to follow. There's more than one way to do this. If an overseer gets his children to submit by using brute force, shaming them, or using dishonorable tactics, you can expect that he will do the exact same when it comes to him leading the church. This is something that we all need to be aware of in our own lives. Just because we're not going to all be leading a church doesn't mean that we're all exempt from leading our households well. We need to lead our households well. We are all called as the church to sharpen one another. In 1 Timothy, later Paul tells Timothy to speak to the men and the women of the church like their parents or siblings. Speak to the older men like fathers, to the younger men as brothers, to the older women as mothers. In Titus chapter 2, Paul tells Titus to teach the older men to be dignified and then the older women to teach the younger women in the church how to conduct themselves and how to care for their families. So even though you're not going to be leading the church, these abilities to manage our household will influence how we interact with each other as a church. We will be greatly hindered in this work if we're not managing our own households well. So what might this look like practically? There's a lot of examples that you can give, um, but there's one really good, relevant biblical example in Ephesians 6.4. Real practical instruction. I've thought about this a lot personally in my life. Might be helpful for you too. It says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger. But bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. To manage them well does not mean that they're going to be perfectly obedient. If that's the case, you can fire me now. My kids aren't. They're not perfectly obedient. John Piper at one point, I don't remember if I read this or listened to it on the podcast, but he goes to the elders of his church to resign. As a pastor of his church. Because his son. Is not a believer. And he was convicted. When he read this passage. He said you know. I don't qualify to be a pastor of the church. Because my son. A grown man at this point. Is not a believer. He goes to the elders and he says. Guys I I think biblically I don't qualify. And through much prayer. They came back to him and said. Brother you're wrong. You qualify. You've managed your household well. Your son's rejected the Lord. So to be a good manager of your household does not mean your kids are going to be perfect. I praise the Lord for that. (laughs) That's not what that means. Managing your household well is more about how you lead your family and raise your children than it is about the specific outcome. You may lead and guide them well. And they may turn from the Lord. I've talked to a lot of parents in student ministry. And they're just distraught because they think, what did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? You know, I have four children. This one's a believer. This one's a believer. This one's a believer. This one just rejected the Lord. We must have done something wrong. Sometimes you can do everything right. More or less. We're not perfect. They're still going to decide to reject the Lord. 
So it's more of an issue of how than the outcome. So how does it how do we see that we are to do this in Ephesians 6 4? What's the example? Two things. Number one, it says, fathers, do not provoke. There's a lot of ways to elicit a response from my children. If I want to get them to do something, there's a number of ways I can do it. If I just scream at the top of my lungs at my kids to do something, I guarantee you they will be terrified and they will do what I tell them to do. I can guarantee it. I can scare the fire out of them and get them to obey. That's not the only way. And that approach might be one that provokes my children to anger. In doing that, I have damaged my ability to lead them well. And though it may not be evident now, they obeyed. Down the road, the fruit of that action will reveal itself in anger, angry, bitter children or adults. So the first practical instruction here is do not provoke. The way that you lead and guide your children and your family should be a dignified, God-honoring way. Here's the second thing it says to do. Bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So don't handle it this way. Rather, here's what you do. You shape them by God's word. So here's what this might sound like. Don't quit lying because my spit is flying in your face. Rather, stop lying because God is truth and in him is no lie. Don't treat others well because I'll embarrass you with a sarcastic, cutting comment and tear you down in front of other people. Rather, treat others well because they're God's creation, just like you. And they sin just like you. And you want others to treat you well when you sin against them, so we should treat others well when they sin against us. Show your children why we're asking them to do what we're asking them to do. I'm not coming at you with this from the perspective of someone who's got it figured out. We thought we did with Kristen. Then Gabriel came along. We were wrong. (laughs) But the scriptures do not lie. Bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. The thing about this qualification that's similar to the first is that it reveals a good deal about the heart of the candidate. Who you are at home is a much more accurate picture of who you are in reality than who you are when you're at work. At church and at work, we're all like, and on Facebook, everyone's, and then at home, that's who you really are. This qualification gives us a glimpse into that. By looking at how this candidate speaks with his wife, instructs his children, you get a really good glimpse at what kind of man this is. If he rules with an iron fist and anger, That's what's in his heart, and that's going to come out when the pressures of the office of overseer rear their face. It will come out. You know, people, when we're under pressure, and this is not original, I wish it was. When we're under pressure, people are a lot like oranges. When you put an orange under pressure and you squeeze it, what's on the inside comes out. And we're the same way. You want to know what someone's really like? Put them under pressure. See how they handle it. That will reveal to you what's on the inside. One way that we can sidestep this with our overseers is by looking at this qualification. 
So we've hit on two really hard topics tonight. Topics that admittedly that kind of has this reputation in church life. Pastors like, oh, you know, I've got to talk about money. Pray for me. Protect me. You know, i got to talk about family and commitments. You know, pray for me. It's two really hard topics. These are universal struggles for marriages and individuals around the world. We all struggle with this. And it can seem overwhelming and impossible to handle both of these well. Let me tell you right now, you will not be perfect at this. You can't. Okay? So before you think this is an unrealistic ideal, I don't even need to try to pursue this because it's impossible. I'm telling you now, you can't do it. But by God's grace, you have the Holy Spirit within you who will grant you what you need to be faithful in each of these spheres. He will give you what you need in the moment. When your kids are just... Your nerves are about shot, and just one more comment, and you're going to explode. God's grace will sustain you in that moment if you ask for it. When you feel yourself stuck in this trap of always just getting more and more and more, and you recognize that, and you think, oh, it just never ends. You know, I just don't know if I can do this. I'm going to have to give something up. I don't know if I can live that way. God will sustain you to do that. Paul in Philippians 4.13, one of the most famous verses in our country, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. The context of that is contentment. How do you live in plenty and in want? How do you live when you have everything, but then when you have nothing? How do you live that way? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. God will supply us the grace we need through the work of Christ. If you try to run your finances and your family without utter dependence upon Christ's guidance and direction, you may stay afloat for a while. But it's going to be a hard journey and it will be fruitless in the long run. Some of you maybe have already learned this. And this is a reminder. Some of you maybe this is a breath of fresh air. A little bit scary. I have to trust in the Lord. You can do this. Look at how Jesus lived. We are his children whom he adopted. His discipline is loving yet strong. His love is unconditional. He's easy to want to follow even though we know we're never going to fill his shoes. And he gave up everything to come and serve us. He gave up the treasures and the glory of heaven and was content to live here among a sinful people with minimal possessions in order to love and to save us. Let's treat our families and our finances the same way. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we are surrounded in a culture that does not encourage the type of living that we have just been instructed about according to your word. There are temptations everywhere. 
snares and traps everywhere, trying to convince us that we really need the extra hours in the office or the full amount of hours this week so that we can afford this extra thing because we need it. And we fall into this trap neglecting our families, neglecting our church, neglecting our personal time with you, and we're none the wiser. But you have shown us in your word, Father, that there is a way out of this snare, that greater is the one who is in us than the one that's in the world. That we can be free from these anxieties by being content. And we know that we can only be content because you will supply all of our needs through your son, Jesus Christ. God, would you help us to be content people? When we have plenty and we have abundance... Make us thankful, but when we don't have an abundance and when we don't seem to have enough, rid us of our panic mode instinct that causes us to grope for things even more. Pull us to our knees and cause us to grope for you, to depend on you in those moments, to be content with exactly what you've given us. Help us to lead and to manage our households well. Help us to love our children well, whether they're young or they're old. Help us to love our spouses well, to lead and to guide each other well. God, take from us the desire for more. Protect us from this love of money that produces all kinds of evil. Help us to use our money and to lead and guide our families in a way that's honoring to you. We love you. We thank you for giving up the treasures and the glories of heaven. The honor that you receive from just sitting on the throne and coming down and dwelling among us and dying for us so that we might be adopted into your family. Help us to love our families as you've loved us. We love you. Jesus, we thank you for your love for us. It's in the name of Christ I pray. Amen.